Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation to be here in Auckland to speak uh, this morning on the subject of leadership and Jesus as leader. I've been asked to say, by the way, that during the talk, apparently behind me, there will be a number. I think there'll be a phone number. And if you want to ask questions afterwards, we're doing it by text message. So at any point, do text a question in and I'll do my best to get through some of those afterwards. We've just heard from the Apostle John writing 2,000 years ago, but from John to Bob Dylan. And maybe some of you know these, uh, these words. I won't sing it, I'll just say the words. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody, yeah. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a straight trooper. You may be a young Turk. You may be head of some big TV network. You might be rich or poor. You might be blind or lame. You might be living in another country under another name. But you're going to have to serve somebody, yeah, You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I would suggest that Bob Dylan's right in those profound words. All of us end up serving somebody. You might not want to. We might have autonomy as our great ideal. I'll make my own decisions and choose my own path. But the reality is we end up serving people. Your life is affected, for example, by the government of the country that you live in. We were just talking about this. I'm about to go home to a different prime minister and a different government. Um, but actually, um, the government you live in can make profound differences to the life that you live. Imagine you were born in Germany in the 1930s, or you were born in China in the 1950s, or you were born in Syria in the 1990s. Then, around the time of your uh, teenage years, university years, your life would have changed massively. Not in a way that you necessarily wanted, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Governments affect our lives. And then uh, most of us won't be self-employed. We'll end up in some sort of um, relationship with a boss. And your boss can have quite a profound effect on your experience of life. Um, I remember my first ever job, I was a teenager. My parents said that pocket money was stopping. It was no longer automatic and I was going to have to go out to work. My mum pressured me to go and work for this local supermarket, which I hated. And I particularly hated it because um, the other guy my age, both 15-year-olds, work in the supermarket, was the son of the manager. And so he got ridiculous favouritism, and I always got the worst jobs. If you've ever shelf-stacked in a supermarket, you'll know that the best thing you can do is toilet roll, because they come in massive multi-packs of 36 rolls, Uh, You only need a few of them to fill an entire aisle, and they weigh nothing. He always got the toilet roll, and I always got the dog food. Um, I hated that job. But, yeah, that was just, you know, it was boring and slightly tedious. But there can be people who have a much worse experience than that of work. And your life can really be affected by who leads your company or who's in charge, your line manager. But actually, maybe even more significant than who leads our country, and even more significant than who your boss is, is who you choose as your role model. Um, Whose ideas you allow to influence you in your life. Now, in our culture, many of us would say, no, no, I don't have any role models. I'm just choosing my own way. 
which is maybe the most naive and foolish answer of all. Because you at least should know how limited you are. And I should know how limited I am. If we've got any sense, we'll realise that we do need to appeal to others for guidance and for counsel. But who do you choose as your guru or your leader? You're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah. You're going to have to serve somebody. And in John chapter 10, just the chapter after we heard read just now, Jesus warns us about that choice. He says it's a very important choice all of us will have to make, but be careful because not every leader that you might choose will be able to bear the weight that you put on them. Let me read to you the words from the next chapter, John 10. I assure you, says Jesus, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens for him. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. Indeed, indeed they'll run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave this illustration, but they didn't understand what he was saying. So he went on, I assure you, I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the, thief, the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They know me. As my father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. See, there's three possible leaders in that passage that sheep can choose or sheep can find themselves being led by. There's a shepherd who's a good shepherd, Jesus says. Uh, then there is the thief and the robber. And Jesus is quite controversial here. He doesn't say, I'm one of the reliable shepherds that you might choose. You know, maybe some of you will find Muhammad helpful. Good luck and go, go with that. Others of you will prefer Hinduism. And maybe you'll choose your favorite god, Vishnu. And yeah, he might be a good shepherd for you. And others will try Buddhism and follow the Buddha. Others will try great secular thinkers like John Stuart Mill or Jean-Paul Sartre. And that's fine. But I'm quite a good shepherd as well. Now, Jesus is very uh, controversial. He says, I'm the good shepherd. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Beware of other shepherds. And that is an extraordinary claim. We'll have to think about that as we go on. There's the good shepherd, there's the thief and the robber, and then there is the hired man. He's just a temp, if you like, on the, on the shepherd's field. And he'll look after you for a bit. But if trouble comes along, he'll abandon you. Be careful who you choose, Jesus says. And Jesus recommends we choose him, which maybe you think is amazingly arrogant. Unless, of course, it's true that he is the good shepherd. And I want to pause on this for a moment, because for me as a non-Christian, as a skeptic, actually that became the, the central question. Is this shepherd 
good. Jesus is asking me to follow him, to give up my autonomy, and to start doing the things that he wants me to do, to let him make the decisions and call the shots. And I was pretty scared about that. You know, to give up control of your life is the biggest thing you have. To entrust your life to somebody else, that's a pretty scary thing. It's uh, why people think seriously about marriage. Because when you walk down the aisle and you make the promises and you say, uh, with my, my body I honour you, all that I have I, I share with you, all that I am I give to you. It's pretty scary, isn't it? At least if you think about it properly, it's scary. You're saying, I'm no longer independent. I'm entrusting my entire life and my future to this other person. And so, if you're wise, you'll think carefully about whom you're going to marry and who you'll say those things to. And similarly, you've got to think carefully about who's going to be your shepherd. Um, My question was, is he good? That was actually the second question I asked. The first question was, um, is he true? And that really matters, doesn't it? We've got to know whether Christianity is, is based on solid evidence or not. And I would suggest that it is, and I got convinced that it was quite early on. But my second question was, is it good? Let's do, is it true first, and then we'll come to, is it good? Is Christianity true? I said, when I was at university, one of the big surprises for me was that people had reasons for what they believed. And one of the reasons they had was miracles that Jesus did like the one we've just heard about, Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth. Now, I used to have a huge problem with miracles as an atheist, skeptic, uh, scientist kind of person. I used to think, this is ridiculous, because obviously miracles can't happen. And so the, the people writing the Bible must just be a bit gullible and naive. So they write down, here's a blind man, and now he can see. But of course, they don't have enough ophthalmology to know that that can't happen. So they're just naive somehow couple of problems with that. Firstly, you don't have to know that much ophthalmology to know that your son is blind, I suggest. I I reckon you work that out if you're his parents um, and now he's an adult and you've had him in your house for all that time. Uh, They work out the difference between being blind and being out to sea. They got enough biology for that. Secondly, you don't have to know much ophthalmology to know it's very, very unusual for people who are blind to be able to see again. Did you notice uh, chapter 9, verse 32? Throughout history, they say, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. So it wasn't as if they just didn't understand the difference between possible and impossible things. Uh, They knew this was an impossible thing. And yet they seem to have witnessed it somehow. Um, Then I started thinking about it. Actually, if there was a God... If you can even conceive of there being a God of of the sort described in the Bible, someone who made everything, someone who sustains the universe by his powerful word, the God who controls history, who one day will wrap up history. And that God, that creator, were to become a human being walking the streets. I mean, that is a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? Imagine... I guess if there were cinemas in the first century, which there weren't, but if there were movie theatres, you know, you could be in a cinema like this and one of the people watching the film over there, yeah, just gentleman at the back, oh, he made the universe. And that's a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? But Jesus was, he wasn't going to movie theatres, but he was doing other normal things, going on fishing trips, 
uh, going to Kirk, helping his mother clean the house, all those sorts of things. But, oh yeah, that guy you just walked past in the street, he was God, he made the world. What an extraordinary idea. But if you're even open to the possibility of that happening, that is, if you don't have a blind faith in your atheism, which you won't even question, but if you're open to the possibility of that, I would actually be quite surprised if there weren't any miracles, wouldn't you? If someone came to earth and he was God, I'd be pretty surprised if everything about his life was entirely normal. In fact, I'd be very suspicious if I told you tonight, oh, by the way, you're, you're lucky to have me this morning um, in Auckland because I'm God. I made you all. You'd be like, really? <laughs> someone would urgently text the, uh, the mental hospital for assistance. Um, especially if you were to say, oh, prove it then. I said, oh, I, I can't prove it. I'm afraid I can't do anything that the rest of you can't do, but trust me, I'm God. Yeah? So actually, the absence of miracles would be more suspicious if God really had come to earth. But the question is, did the miracle really happen? And the great thing about this miracle is I, it gets a full-scale investigation by hostile authorities. Did you notice that? At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus walks up to a man, he's blind, uh, spits, puts some mud on his eyes, and he can see. And the chapter would be very short if that's all that happened. just takes about five or six verses. But the entire rest of the chapter is a full-scale investigation in which we meet, first of all, the people who lived in the village where this man uh, was born. Isn't that the guy who was born blind, they say? There's quite a lot of people confirming that this isn't just somebody, you know, he pretends to have a limp to come into church before the televangelist preacher does a, quotes, healing, and everyone gets excited. There are fakes, aren't there, out there um, on American cable TV channels. But this isn't somebody just hobbling because someone slipped them a, a $10 note before the service. This is someone whose entire village knows that he was always blind, and now they're very confused that he can see again. Then we get the, the, guys, uh, the guy interviewed. Uh, what, what happened to you? I'm not really sure, he says. I was blind. And then this guy called Jesus put some, money, uh, put some mud on my eyes and now I can see. Those are the facts. So how did it happen? Well, I don't know how it happened, but I can tell you it did happen because I can now see you. Then they get the parents in. Is this your son? Yeah. Was he blind? Yes. How did it happen? We didn't know how it happened, but he was blind. I mean, it almost becomes almost comic, doesn't it, towards the end? You're like, for goodness sake, guys, drop it. It's pretty obvious. This was a blind man, and now he can see, okay? These are the facts. And they're checkable. And they're in front of witnesses. In other words, um, if I wanted to make up a religion, or I wanted to make up a fairy story, I would begin it the way all fairy stories begin, long, long ago, far, far away. I'd make sure I was the only witness... So I could say, oh, um, while I was in um, uh, Christchurch, I went out into the mountains by myself. And on my own, somewhere in the mountains, I levitated a, a New Zealand sheep for two minutes. But no one else was there. You'll just have to take my word for it. Well, I think you probably wouldn't take my word for it, would you? Similarly, if I were to say, as Islam says, I, I was in a, a cave on a mountain on my own. And while I was there, an angel appeared to me. You'll have to take my word for it. Personally, I wouldn't take his word for it. Especially because Muhammad then became a very, very rich and powerful man. But when Jesus heals a man born blind, then we've got witnesses. His parents, 
No. His villagers? No. The religious authorities investigate it, and it's all out in the public. I, I basically began to be convinced, on the basis of things like this, that this isn't just a fairy story. Real witnesses, real history, real miracles. Could it be that there was a God who made the world? Oh, yeah, I think there probably was. I thought it was true. I got convinced it was true because of reasons. And so you'd think that my story would be, at that point, I became a Christian. But no, I was convinced it was true, but I didn't know if it was good. And that was my problem. Because to give up the reins of your life, to hand your life over to somebody else and say, please be in control from now on, it requires more than knowing that Jesus is powerful. i got to know that he won't stuff up my life. And that's really what I feared that Christianity would do. If I follow Jesus, I'll lose my freedom, I'll lose my independence, my sex life will disappear, and my whole life will become grey and dead. And so my big hesitation was, can I trust him? And Jesus says, yes, you can, because I'm a good shepherd, and you ought to beware of the others. Beware of all who came before me. Beware of the thieves and the robbers. Now, there's two things I want to say about the thieves and the robbers. Firstly, that they were spoken about long, long beforehand in the Jewish scriptures. And the prophet Ezekiel, writing hundreds of years before Jesus, says this about the shepherds of Israel. And he's referring to the kings and the prophets and the priests, those who led the country. And God says this, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Shouldn't shepherds feed their flock? But you eat the fat, you wear the wool, you butcher the fattened animals, but you don't tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bandaged the injured. You have not brought back the strays. You have not sought the lost. Instead, you've ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for the wild animals. My flock went astray in all the mountains and every high hill. They were scattered, and there was no one searching for them or seeking for them. See the language? Jesus picks it up from the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years beforehand where God had indicted the religious leaders because they failed. You don't serve people, you just served yourself. And of course that's so often true, isn't it, about politicians? And certainly it's true, I think, in the UK with the scrabble to be the next prime minister, backstabbing each other. Probably not for the good of the country, but for the good of the person who's standing for office. You serve yourselves. The same is true, sadly, of many, many religious leaders in this world. Uh, they like the attention. They like the power over people. They like, in some cases, the money. Serving themselves. God says, woe to you, you fake leaders. But then through the prophet Ezekiel, this is God's solution. He says, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will shepherd them with justice. God says, I'm fed up with these fake leaders, these fake shepherds. I'm going to be the shepherd. That's what he promises years before. Um, well, Jesus is picking up on that, and you, you recognize the language. But secondly, I want to suggest that we have just seen a great performance by the fake shepherds in chapter 9. Here are the Pharisees. They're supposed to be the teachers, helping people understand God. 
And they've just witnessed in their town an incredible miracle where a, a man who's born from blind has been healed. So how do they treat this man? And how do they treat the evidence? And the answer is they treat him absolutely shamefully. And they behave in a way that entirely serves themselves. Do you notice that? Uh, they, they do an investigation. Oh, what, what happened to you? Oh, I was blind, but now I see. No, you didn't. That's impossible. Oh, well, Jesus did. Oh, it can't be him. No, because he's from the wrong place. He, we don't know where he came from. It can't be from him because he did it on the Sabbath. And we have our preset ideas that um, the Messiah wouldn't be able to do things like that on Saturday, which, by the way, is a massive misunderstanding of the Sabbath. You can ask that in questions if you want. Uh, it can't have been from God. Uh, we're not interested. They get his parents in. What happened, they say? The parents are intimidated because these religious leaders, they've got the power to throw somebody out of the synagogue, basically to make you an exile from your society. So they're very cautious in answering because these religious teachers are bullies. Then they get the man in again. And this time they, they feed the man his lines. We know, he says, that this man's a sinner, Jesus is a sinner. So give glory to God, tell us what we want to hear. The man says, look, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to follow your script. I've just been healed. How dare you lecture us, they say. And they throw him out. Here are shepherds, shepherds so-called, who ignore the evidence. It's ironic, isn't it, that in a way they're the ones who are blind. Physically they can see. But spiritually they just refuse to follow the evidence where it leads. And as a result they end up being quite hostile and abusive to those who follow him. I've experienced that in a small way, even in the UK, trying to start a little church in a part of the UK, and the, the worst opposition to our new church has come from religious leaders who are threatened by their own little power being challenged. It's very sad. Um, religious leaders abusing people, and religious people, ironically, when the Messiah actually turns up and proves it, they will not listen. They've already decided the conclusion before they look at the evidence. I hope there's no one like that here. It'd be a foolish mistake, wouldn't it? To prejudge Jesus before you consider him. We've seen the thieves and the robbers. And Jesus says, you don't want to follow them. Remember the prophet Ezekiel? He said, God's going to come and do the job himself. I will seek out the strays. I will bind up the injured. And effectively Jesus is saying in this chapter here I am. Ezekiel promised that God would come and do the job himself here I am. Here I am, your God come to shepherd you personally. So choose him over the thief and the robber but then um, secondly and maybe even more profoundly choose him over the hired hand See, the hired hand's not malicious like the thief and the robber is. They're not um, evil. It's just, well, they're, they're only committed as far as it goes. It's just been paid for the day's work. So, you know, they look after you on a sunny day. But if a wolf comes, it's not worth their salary to risk being devoured by a wolf. They'll leave you to it. So then they're not so much hostile... It's just their loyalty has its limits. Um, I could make an analogy with David Cameron. It'd be cheeky, wouldn't it? But yeah, he's your prime minister until it gets tricky. Bye, you're on your own now. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, 
But Jesus says he's not like that. And the crucial difference is he sticks with his sheep even when it gets very, very dangerous. I'm the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. See, ultimately, how can you tell what kind of leader Jesus is going to be and whether he's going to wreck your life? He says he won't. He says, I'll lead you into good pasture, which, if you're a sheep, is about the best thing you want in the world, isn't it? Green grass is like you've won the lottery. You know, this is, this is great for a sheep. Jesus says, I'll, I'll give you that. He says so, but how do you know he means it? Jesus says, you know I mean it because of what happens just a little bit later when he lays down his life. For the sheep. He dies on the cross for the sheep, to, to rescue the sheep, to rescue them from God's judgment, to cleanse them from their wrongdoing, to defeat their enemy, the devil, who wants to devour them and scatter them. Jesus says, it ought to be obvious that you can trust me. And if it's not obvious yet, just wait a few months after he says these words and watch what happens as I show my commitment to you with my life. Remember for me as a non-Christian, as a sceptic, this was the clincher in the end. Because I had this suspicion that Jesus was going to mess up my life. And it was kind of irrational because he hadn't messed up the lives of the Christians I knew. In fact, they were much more together than I was and most of my friends were. Um, it, it wasn't, there wasn't obvious evidence of him turning people grey and lifeless. The Christians I knew seemed to be full of joy. And, uh, but I still had this suspicion. He wants to turn me grey. And in the end, it was this logic that, that pushed me over the edge. I thought, why would he die for me in order to wreck my life? It just doesn't make sense, does it? Why would he show me that commitment if his design for me was to make me lifeless and dull and nothing. No, it, it must be that he loves me. It must be that he's committed to me. And I don't know anyone else who's that committed. But beware, says Jesus, you've got to serve somebody. Well, that's Bob Dylan, actually, but Bob Dylan and Jesus together. You've got to serve somebody. Jesus says, beware who it is. Don't pick a thief and a robber. There's religious fakes out there. There's political fakes. There are secularist, atheist fakes. Watch out for the thief and the robber. But also, Jesus says, you, you won't be much better with the hired hand. He'll be good for a bit until danger comes. Trust your life to the shepherd who laid down his life for you. If you're here as a skeptic, um, I want to say to you two things. Um, by all means, ask the is it true questions. You, you need to do that. No one is asking you to take a, a leap of blind faith in the dark. Please ask the question if it's true. The best start you could make with that would be to look at one of the eyewitness documents, like John. We've looked at just two chapters today, but there's uh, 21 chapters in the book. Why not start at the beginning and just consider what happened? Am I even open to the possibility that one of the people walking along the streets 2,000 years ago made the universe? 
What's the evidence for that? Ask the is it true questions. But secondly, please then consider, is he good? Compare him with the other alternatives. Self-serving leaders. Or limiters, leaders whose loyalty to you is limited, understandably, because they're just a hired hand. And who better could you serve than the one who laid down his life for you? Thanks very much for listening. I think we're going to questions now, so get texting. Because the questions magically appear on the screen in front of me, so I'm new to this technology. I'm waiting for a question, so text away, and apparently this green screen will display it. If not, I'll just stand here like a lemon, so you could enjoy that as well. One, it says number one, here we go. Behind me. Ah, there we are. And and you all knew that, didn't you? I was just looking into the distance. Thanks so much. Okay. If Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, why would he do things on the Sabbath? Oh, thank you. That was a question I asked you to ask. So very grateful for that person. Um, So quite a lot of the time, Jesus' miracles uh, happen on Saturdays, and this really upsets the Jewish authorities. Um, Actually, as a skeptic, I found this quite encouraging because often... This case is slightly different, but often the authorities don't dispute that he does the miracle. They're just crossed because he does it on a Saturday. So um, it's interesting to me that even his opponents sometimes do not question the miracle occurred. In fact, in one case, they even use the fact that Jesus did it as the very means of accusing him. And I thought, surely he's just proved that he can do miracles. And they go, yeah, he has, but he's done them on Saturdays. So... um, that just confirms the evidence. But, but actually, ironically, they, they get it wrong because in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, you were supposed to have Saturday as a day of rest to remember two things. It comes in the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. You're to take a day of rest to remember that the goal of God's creative work was to enjoy the creation in a perfect world, a perfect rest. God made the world. And then he rested on the Sabbath. He enjoyed what he'd made. So you're meant to have a day to remember that God always had a goal for creation, that it would be complete and great and he can enjoy it. But secondly, a bit later on in their history, they were to remember the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath, that God had rescued them. The people of Israel were once slaves in Egypt, and God uh, brought them out of Egypt and, and uh, uh, redeemed them to be his own people. And on Saturdays, they were supposed to remember that. So basically, Saturday was the day for remembering that God rescued you and that he was going to bring about a perfect world. Now, ironically, the best possible day for Jesus to heal people is then the Sabbath. Because he's doing a sign on the Sabbath of the thing that the Sabbath was pointing to. God can rescue you and he can bring about a perfect world. Here's a demonstration of it. Rescuing somebody... And sorting out their, their life. In this case, a man who's blind. But as a sign of, he can sort out everything in the world. Not just blindness, but all of the evil and pain in the world. So it's sort of super ironic that actually a Sabbath is the very best day to do this on. And if they thought about the Old Testament properly, they ought to have understood that. 
but they just reduced it to a kind of, oh, no, you mu- you're not supposed to do things, then the doctor's surgery should be closed on Saturdays, and you just healed somebody. And so they don't understand it at all. Thank you. Is there another? Yes. What are some examples of how Jesus has given you the good life and not the great life? Okay, well, you'll have to decide. Um, he's given me, through his death, eternal life and forgiveness. If I were to stand before God on Judgment Day on the basis of how I've lived, I haven't got a chance of getting in. A God with any kind of standards at all oughtn't to let me in to his perfect world and oughtn't to let you in either. But on the basis of Jesus' death for me, I have eternal life um, and forgiveness. It's pretty good for starters. Um, on the basis of his uh, death for me, I have a relationship with the God who made me, who I now know is a heavenly father. And I can pray to and he hears my prayers. Um, as um, a, a Christian, I, I've actually, some of the things that I was most reluctant to give up, I think were overrated. So um, I was a student when I became a Christian and sex was the big thing. I thought I want to be able to have sex with whoever I want to. And um, Christianity doesn't want that and I knew that would be a big sacrifice. I think it was overrated. So at the time I, I thought that you know, people who could sleep with whoever they wanted were brilliantly enlightened. And I was just quite naive. Twenty years later, most of them I know got very badly hurt by that. Um, and the friends who had multiple relationships now have a problem getting close to anyone. And it's a real regret to them that they were you know, so free and easy with something so precious as their own body. And the Christians, who I thought were boring because they were saving it for marriage, I see live in happy, stable marriages where they give themselves physically to somebody who they can trust and doesn't let them down, doesn't throw them away when they move on to the next attractive person who comes along. And they're fulfilled and happy. So actually, I think, you know, I used to think the Christian view of sex was boring. I now think it's brilliant. And I was just naive. And the thing I thought was free was actually rubbish and has hurt people. So yeah, those sorts of things. Oh, it's on this screen. It's now on this screen as well. Good, I'll look forward. Um, as a skeptic, how did you base your reason for believing on the accounts from the Bible? Yeah, thanks. Um, is it, this is another topic, and it would take a whole um, a talk to address it. But um, just very briefly, um, I don't think this is the story that you would make up, and I don't think it's the story that you could make up. I don't think it's the story you would make up, because... Um, well, there's all sorts of things about the story of Jesus that don't make his followers prestigious and rich. <laughs> so if, you, if you're inventing a religion, I think people have invented religions, and normally the people who invent religions do quite well out of it. But um, the disciples don't do that well out of this. They get persecuted. Um, they are honest about their own failings. So Peter, you know, the leader of the early church... He allows them to put in the eyewitness documents, put in the fact that I was so cowardly that I denied I'd ever met Jesus when a servant girl asked me. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. I did that, and then I broke down like a baby and cried. You better put that in. See, it seems to me they're trying to be honest rather than write things to their own advantage. I don't think it's the story you'd make up. Um, in particular, I don't think you would die for something that you knew was not true. So people do die for untrue things all the time. Um, I think the guy who drove the lorry into a crowd of people on Bastille Day 
um, died for a lie. He will not go straight to paradise, as presumably he thinks. So he dies for a lie. Um, but people don't die for something they know is a lie. Um, you won't find a suicide bomber uh, who doesn't believe in paradise blowing himself up like that. And the key, the key thing about the, the New Testament is the people who suffered and died for it are the same as the people who were there and who know whether or not it's true. seems to me John thinks it's true. John is writing and his friends. Because they go through all kinds of grief. Why would you make that up? Um, and then lastly, it's not the story you could make up because they name witnesses. You know, if you want to make up a fairy story, as I said before, long, long ago, far, far away, don't start telling us what towns it happened in and what people it happened to because the skeptics can turn up and investigate, as, as they do here, and they'll disprove it. Um, who would be an example of a hired hand today? Um, I think the, the category is a non-malicious person who nonetheless isn't going to die for you. So the, the thief and the robber is the malicious person, the, the fake, who's out for themselves. The hired hand might be loyal, loyal friends, parents, whatever, but they won't get you out of hell and they can't die on the cross for you. And so their commitment to you is just limited. Not necessarily evil people, but they just won't go as far as the Good Shepherd goes. Um, Final question, how does the idea of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, keeping all his sheep, fit with the idea that some people stop being Christian? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And John 10 is very clear on it, actually, that um, Jesus will not lose his sheep. It's just after the bit that we read, actually, but if you look down the chapter, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So it's great comfort. The question isn't, am I strong enough to keep going as a Christian? Uh, the question is, is Jesus' hand strong enough to keep me inside it? And the answer is, yeah, obviously. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, what about my Father? Is his hand strong enough? Because we've got you in our hand and you will not be snatched. So it's a great comfort. If you're living as a Christian, trusting in Jesus, he will not let you go. However, um, if you're saying, oh, great, well, that means I'm a Christian, so I can do whatever I like. I don't need to bother following Jesus. I can just live a life of, of my own. But, you know, he did say he can't let me be snatched. So presumably eternal life for free while I live independently of God. Then Jesus says, no, don't play games like that. Because that just means you're not really a Christian at all. You're not a sheep because you're not following me. So it's, it's an encouragement for true sheep. If you're following Jesus, be encouraged. He won't let you go. If you're not following Jesus, uh, he knows you're not. And uh, if you're, you call yourself a Christian, he knows whether you're a Christian or not. And don't think he'll be fooled. Don't play games. Um, uh, other questions? I th- I, someone's put on the screen uh, for you, no, for me, saying some of the questions are duplicates, so, um, but apologies if your question wasn't answered. I'm around afterwards. Come and talk to me. I'll be happy to try and answer questions individually. Um, can I just finish with what I've done um, around New Zealand so far? Your culture that loves coffee, and I love coffee as well, and um, I'm obsessed by it, and looking forward to enjoying some good flat whites in this city. Um, here is my coffee challenge to Kiwis. If you're here and you've not looked into 
uh, Jesus properly as an adult. You know, maybe it was just some church as a kid, a Sunday school, or a few RE lessons, and you think, I've never properly investigated, and I ought to. There's various things you could do. We, we've heard already about the uh, Christianity Explain, Explaining Christianity course. You could fill in that. It'd be great. Here's a suggestion from me. Why not take one of the eyewitness documents, um, say John, we looked at today, and read it slowly enough to actually think about it. So I suggest, why don't you read just one chapter and take an hour to do so? And then as you go through, annotate it. You can print it out from the internet. You could have taken one away with you, but I left it in my suitcase, I'm sorry. But print it out from the internet, get a Christian friend to give you one, anything like that, and annotate it. So tick everything you agree with, cross everything you disagree with, and underline anything you don't understand. Just for one chapter. So take some time, annotate it. And then meet your Christian friend for a coffee, which they will buy, I'm promising on their behalf, and go through your annotations for chapter one. And if it's useful, you could do the same for chapter two. And if that's useful, chapter three, and there's 21 coffees in John's Gospel uh, that you can enjoy. But at at whatever point it stops being useful, just say, let's leave it there, and and you won't be hounded. So all you've got to lose is one hour of your life to read and a coffee, but potentially 21 coffees, and potentially some of the answers to these questions. Is it true? You've got to work that out. You need to work that out. It's very important. Is it true? And secondly, is he good? Can I trust him? I'm going to lead in prayer, and then I'll hand back over. Heavenly Father, thank you that you never ask us to take a leap of blind faith in the dark. On the contrary, Lord, we see that you've left yourself ample testimony. There's evidence in history. Eyewitnessed, investigated, checked out. And we thank you, Lord, that not only can we be sure that you are true, that Jesus really came as God into history, but also we thank you that he is good, that he laid down his life for us. He will not let us down. And we pray for those here today, whether we're Christians and and struggling, or whether there's skeptics here, we pray that we would be able to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and follow his way. For Jesus' sake, amen.